you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 is where we will be this morning. Thank you to the band for that song, for the reminder that Christ does indeed love us and loves us in a way that is not found anywhere else in the world. We can love like Jesus in certain ways, but we can never love as Jesus loves. And we should strive to love like Jesus. <clears throat> but we'll be in Mark chapter 2 this morning we will, where we will see a demonstration of the love of Christ. But while you're turning there, I'd like to, like to ask you, have you ever thought that celebrities are often unhappy people? And celebrities are often unhappy people. And it's odd because we, as a culture, want so much to be celebrities. We want to be known. We want to be respected. We want other people to desire the things that we have. We want other people to be envious of the life that we have. We want other people to say, I wish I had their life, which is oftentimes what we do with celebrities. But a popular magazine writer once talked about an interview, or once talked in an interview, about many of the celebrities that she knew. Because of her job as a writer, she was able to interact with celebrities, both those on their way up and those who had reached the peak of their careers and their fame. They were well known. She talked of how the people who were working their way up, the people who had the hopes of aspirations, that they were working odd jobs, trying to make ends meet and struggling to pay bills like so many other people. She talked about how those people were often happier than when she would encounter them later when the success had been achieved. That they had gained the success, that they had gained the fame and the money, and they no longer struggled, and yet, she said, they became some of the meanest people that I knew. And so this, this writer, who's not a Christian, made this comment in this article. She said, I think when God wants to play a rotten joke on you, He grants you your deepest wish. Now, that's not true. Let's say that up front. That's not true. But this is a non-Christian talking about what she sees in the world. That these people who stated, I have this desire. I'm going to give my whole self to obtaining this desire. And then they obtained it. And she said it just ruined their lives. They became mean. They became stressed. They became cold. They became unhappy. And so the very thing that they thought would get them happiness actually got them more unhappiness. But that leads us to the main idea of the sermon this morning, which is this, that Jesus, being God incarnate, has the authority to forgive the sins of rebellious humanity. And here's how those two things tie together. That our deepest need, whether we realize it or not, our deepest desire is to have our sins forgiven. And Jesus is able to meet that need. Jesus, because he has the authority of God, being God, is able to meet our deepest need. Let me invite you to stand as we read from our text this morning, from Mark chapter 2. We will pick up reading in verse 1. Mark chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. 
And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let him down, let down to bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within their hearts, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come now to meet us as we study it. Pray that you would cause me to preach it rightly. That you would cause us as a church body to receive it well, to repent over our sin, to put our full faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone who is able to save. Lord, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. So the main idea is that Jesus is able, has authority to, forgive the sins of rebellious humanity. And as we've been talking about in Mark chapter 1, and now into chapter 2, Jesus has all authority, and he is exercising that authority in particular ways. And in this story, he is exercising that authority to forgive sins. And so the salvation of mankind comes through the forgiveness of sin. The salvation of man comes through the forgiveness of sin of Jesus Christ. And so right here from chapter 2, Mark is preparing us for the cross. He's preparing us for the cross because although like us, We have insight into the story. We are familiar probably with the story of the cross if you've grown up in the church. But the people in this story were not familiar. They weren't expecting the cross. It came out of nowhere that Jesus, who is God, who has authority over everything, even over death, would die. And yet Mark is preparing us, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But I want us to look at a few things in the story about the healing of the paralytic. The first one is we need to take note of the scene. What's actually going on as this miracle occurs? Well, we see that he's back in Capernaum. If you will remember that he had gone out from Capernaum with his disciples to preach in the synagogues and to teach the word of God and to cast out demons. And it said that he was gone for some days. So now he's returned to Capernaum, and it seems as though the, the, the fervor around him has died down. People are not, they don't think he's there anymore, so they're not looking for him. But he's returned back, and it says, and it was reported that he was at home. So while he 
was somewhere, whether he was in his home and someone passed by on the street and saw him or someone saw him on the street, they recognized him as the one who had been healing the sick and casting out the demons. And it was reported very quickly, even more quickly than Facebook, that Jesus was back in town. And so it says a crowd had amassed at the door. So a crowd gathers and Jesus is preaching the word. Now, if you recall from last week, we talked about it. That was Jesus' central mission, that he came to preach the word. And the authority of his preaching was demonstrated in miracles. But here he is again preaching the word. And if we take note of the language of the description of the crowds, it seems as though it's, they're packed in there like sardines. Now, they didn't have big houses back then. A lot of times they were in row houses right off the street. And these people were compressed into the door, into the room, so much so that Jesus could probably not have gotten out. Now, I don't know if you're, if you're like me, that, that makes me uncomfortable to think about that many people in that small of a space. But Jesus' teaching was so compelling, Jesus' miracles were so compelling that people were willing to crowd themselves in to hear Jesus teach and preach the word. And so as this is going on, these four friends realize Jesus is back in town. Jesus can heal sickness, and he has. Jesus has authority to do these things. We have this friend who's a paralytic and can't move. Jesus can help him. And so they get him on his bed, and they take him to see Jesus. And when they get there, they encounter the crowd. There's no way to get him in there. And so instead of being deterred, they decide, we'll go up on the roof. We are going to get our friend to Jesus. We're going to get him there. And so we see in verse 4, they couldn't get near him because of the crowd, so they removed the roof above him. And you see that phrase in your Bible should say something like, when they had made an opening. Now, in, that, in those days, roof construction differed from our day. Perhaps that's not surprising to you. In those days, roof construction would have been Beams of wood overlaid with mud and with tree leaves, tree branches, so that it would form a semi-solid roof. And the phrase there, made an opening, actually translates, dug a hole. So when they had dug a hole in the roof, they lowered the man down. Now, put yourself in the scene. All right, you realize before many other people that Jesus is back in town. You realize he's in that house, and so you are able to crowd into the room before the crowd comes. And so you're sitting there, you're listening to Jesus, and all of a sudden, dirt starts falling on your head. And at first, you're not too concerned about it because it's a dirt roof. It probably happens somewhat often, but then it starts more and more dirt begins to fall, and sunlight starts to peek through, and then there's a commotion, and you realize, oh, there's somebody digging through the roof. But you notice Mark pays no attention to that. Now, if you and I were there, we would no doubt communicate that as we told the story. Even if we, our main point was to say, hey, Jesus healed this man, we would have told the part about, oh, by the way, these guys came through the roof through a hole they dug. But Mark doesn't pay any attention to that because Mark's point is for us to see Jesus. And so it doesn't tell us whether Jesus paused to watch them dig through the roof. It doesn't tell us if he kept on going. It just says that the men dug a hole in the roof. They let down the bed on which the paralytic 
lay. And so there we have the scene. But in addition to that, it says that he healed him, and as he healed him, or as he forgave his sins, it says there were some scribes present who were questioning, but not outwardly. They were questioning in their spirit. And so there's our scene. That's what's going on. And so we move on to the question of healing, which is the second point on your notes. The question of the healing. So the man's been let down through a hole dug in the roof. The crowd is no doubt ready to see and hear Jesus' response to this man who has come through the roof. And when Jesus saw their faith, it says in verse 5, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Man's laying on his bed paralyzed. He's just been let through a roof. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. The man's no doubt taken aback at the response. He's no doubt surprised at the response because recall the effort and the interruption and the struggle. He and no doubt his friends expected to say, son, you are healed. Get up and walk. They went through all of this trouble to interrupt Jesus' teaching, to dig a hole in a man's roof. And Jesus says, your sins are Forgiven. I would have hoped to have heard him say, get up and walk. Now mind you, the crowd is probably thinking the same thing. Why would Jesus say to this man who needs healing, why would he say to him, your sins are forgiven? But you see, Jesus knew something that this man didn't know. Jesus knows something that we don't often know. He knows that there is something more important than his physical condition. He knows that there's something more important than the fact that this man can't walk or can't move on his own. And so Jesus is saying to the man, I understand your problems. Jesus is saying, I understand your suffering. I'm going to get to that. But please realize first that the main problem in a person's life is not their suffering. It is their sin. The main problem in a person's life, brothers and sisters, that means your life and in my life, the main problems in our lives is not our sufferings, it is our sin. It is our sin. So you see, once again, the physical healing of our bodies or the physical healing of what's wrong in our life is always secondary to what Jesus does with our sin. You see, if Jesus heals our sicknesses and yet never deals with our sin, guess what happens? We still will go to hell. But if Jesus never touches our bodies on this earth and yet totally forgives our sins, guess what happens? We go to be with heaven for him forever and receive eternal healing. And so you see, our main problem, the main problem of this paralytic and the main problem that you and I have is that we often are not recognizing our sin. We often don't see it rightly. And because we don't see it rightly, we don't respond rightly. We want someone to tell us how to conquer our sin or how to do uh, better with our sin. We do not want to hear that we are helpless in our sin. We do not want to hear that our sin is too great of a problem for us to deal with on our own. 
But you see, sin is ignoring God in the world that he has made. We said from the get-go, this is the story of God's creating the world and of God's saving the world. This is God's story that my story, my life, finds its place inside of God's story. And so when I go about my life not paying attention to God or neglecting God or rebelling against God, I am in sin. Even if I profess to believe in God and yet I live my life without reference to Him, without consulting Him, without asking, how does the Word of God speak to this? Then I am in sin. It means when we face sickness that we don't come to God for healing. We come to God, we don't come to God for ultimate healing. It means that we come to God only for physical healing. When we are in sin, it means that we come to Him for something other than Himself. When we find ourselves in hard spots, we want God to fix it. But sometimes when we find ourselves, when times are easy going or when things are going well, when we don't need much help, we find ourselves not much in need of God. When things are going well in our lives, sometimes we, we don't depend on this in the way that it says we must depend on this. And so when Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven, Jesus is telling the man that his request for healing is not deep enough. He's saying, you have come to me to ask me to heal the very thing in your life that consumes you, and yet you're not asking something deep enough. He's telling him that his main problem is not his paralysis. So this morning, if you're dealing with some kind of sickness or illness, Jesus is saying that the main problem in your life is not your cancer. The main problem in your life is not your suffering. The main problem in your life is not the loss of a job. The main problem in your life is not that your life might come to an end. The man no doubt, no doubt thought, if Jesus will only heal me, well, he will only heal my body, then I'll be happy. If Jesus would only heal me, I'll never complain about a single thing again. If Jesus would heal me, I would never be unhappy. If Jesus would heal me, everything would finally be all right. And you see, some of us pray like this. Some of us engage with God like this. If Jesus would only give me a bit more money, I would be content. If Jesus would only make my spouse love me the way that I want, I wouldn't have to step out. If Jesus would just heal this sickness, I would never complain or be unhappy ever again. Because what we're saying, brothers and sisters, when we treat God like that, we're saying if Jesus would just be my Lord the way I want him to be, I would follow him. You see, that's where we find ourselves. If Jesus would just be Jesus the way I want him to be, I would always follow him. But Jesus says to the man, and he says to us, you are mistaken. You see, if Jesus healed that man without forgiving his sin, he would have eventually grown unhappy. The euphoria of healing, the happiness of healing doesn't last because the roots of discontentment in our hearts are far too deep. The roots of our discontentment are far too deep. You see, brothers and sisters, we often make our wish into our Savior. We often take the thing that we are hoping for, that we are wishing for, and we turn it into our Savior. If God will just grant me such and such, 
If God would just heal this disease, if God would just meet this need, I'll be happy. And yet the only path to happiness is having Jesus Christ. We often try turning our deepest wish into our Savior and always find despair and discontentment. Much like the celebrity who says, if I can just reach celebrity, if I can just reach fame, if I can just have fortune, I'll be happy. And when they obtain it, they find actually it's worse. Some of us are like that. If, if God would just heal my sickness, I'd be happy. I would never miss church again. And then he heals us, and then we, got, we start going back to church because we feel like we owe God one, but that only gets us so far. That only gets us so far. We're ultimately asking God just to level the field so I can get back to helping myself. I want to share with you a story from the Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody familiar with C.S. Lewis's series, The Chronicles of Narnia? This is from a, sto- a story from the book called The Dawn Treader. And in The Dawn Treader, there's a boy named Eustace. And in the story, Eustace wanders off into a cave, and the cave proves to be filled with diamonds and rubies and gold. Now, if you don't know Eustace, Eustace has had a hard life. People have not been kind to Eustace. And so when he finds these diamonds and this treasure, he thinks, I'm rich. And immediately, because he is who he is, he thinks he'll be able to pay everybody back. And he'll be happy forever because he's rich. But what Eustace doesn't understand, what Eustace doesn't see, is that the treasure will ultimately control him. He doesn't yet know that in the story it is a horde of a dragon. And because he falls asleep with his greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he wakes up as a dragon, big and terrible. <clears throat> Sorry. Big and terrible and ugly. And soon he realizes there's no way out. He can't go back to his boat. He is left on the island alone. He is going to be horrible all of his life. And one day, the great lion Aslan shows up. Now, if you don't know who Aslan is, he is God in the story. And Aslan shows up and leads him to a clear pool of water and tells him to undress and jump in. And suddenly Eustace realizes that undress means take off the dragon skin. So he begins to claw and claw off the scales and realizes that he can't shed his skin. And so working at it, he finally peels off the skin, but to his dismay, he finds underneath another dragon skin. So he tries a second time and a third time to no avail. But something, the same thing, happens every single time. And in the end, the lion says, you're going to have to let me go deeper. You're going to have to let me go deeper. And so Eustace tells the story. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than they others had been. And then he caught hold of me, and he threw me in the water, and it shocked me, but only for a moment. And then I saw 
I had turned boy again. The writer goes on to say that the fact that we thought the deepest wish would heal us, the fact that we thought getting our deepest wish would heal us, is not the problem. Having, the deepest, having a deep wish is not a problem. Thinking that obtaining that deepest wish, thinking that obtaining that desire will heal us, is the problem. The problem is not what we want. The problem is thinking that what we want, brothers and sisters, will save us. So that leads us to the third point, which is the confrontation with the religious leaders. Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven. He looks at him and he speaks beyond the man's request for physical healing and heals him eternally. He heals his actual deepest need. And so it says in verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so you see their, their issue with this is that when Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven, the language tells us that Jesus was forgiving as the one who had been sinned against. You see, a scribe or a priest could say, based on this sacrifice, God says your sins are forgiven. But Jesus is saying, I am God and you have sinned against me. And I am saying your sins against me are forgiven. Your sins against me are forgiven. And so the scribes are confronted by this. Only God can forgive sins, and this man, by forgiving his sins, is claiming to be God. And so to give them a hint that he is, in fact, a God, he reads their minds. They don't question this outwardly. It says, Mark tells us that this was an inward question that they had. And Jesus knew, Jesus perceived, Jesus read their hearts and their thoughts, and he answers them, he answers them. And he says, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And so Jesus raises the question of ease. Which one of these is easier? Now, for our perspective, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. It'd be much harder to say to a paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and walk, because I would have no confidence that he could do that. Just by the power of my words. You would have no confidence just by speaking to him that he could get up and walk. You see there in your notes, Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 22. In the Old Testament, God provides criteria to judge prophets. Prophets would come and say things like, your sins are forgiven. And God said, here's a way to know that they're true. If their words come with authority, if their words come with a demonstration of authority, you may know that their words are true. And so Jesus says, which one's easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to rise and walk? And he says, verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Rise, pick up your bed and go home. You see, well, we might think it's easier the saying your sins are forgiven versus the actual healing is actually backwards. What's easier is to tell that man to get up and go home. 
What's easier is just to exercise some authority to heal that man and send him on his way because do you know what the forgiveness of sin requires? It requires death. It requires and it will require Jesus going to the cross for the sins of humanity, the sins that he just forgave. He's saying, I'm going to deal with that. And so that you know the bigger thing, which is the forgiving of sins, will be done. I will show you by healing this paralytic. Get up and walk. Jesus takes our realities, takes our understanding of realities sometimes, and just turns them upside down. Because you see, Jesus is not only just Savior, He is Lord. And He is both. And He cannot be one without the other. We cannot have Jesus as our Savior if He is not our Lord. If we only come to Jesus for physical healing and never come to Him with a desire to know Him and to follow Him, we are not coming for Him. We are coming to Him as some magic worker. And which leads us to the last point, which is that we've now been put into the shadow of the cross. By identifying Himself firmly as God incarnate through forgiving of sins... And by further demonstrating that he has the authority to forgive sins by healing the man, Jesus is preparing us and preparing these people for the coming of the cross. This confrontation with the religious leaders of whom this story tells, his challenge to their understanding and their power and their authority will inevitably lead to the cross. Because Mark is showing us that he's not just another miracle worker. He's not just another teacher of the law. Something greater than physical healing must be done in order to deal with the sins of humanity. One pastor said, we need someone who can go deeper than that. Someone who will use his claws lovingly and carefully to pierce our self-sitterness, to remove our sin that enslaves us and even distorts our beautiful longings because it's not wrong to want to be healed it's not wrong to want to be healed it's wrong to think healing will save us it's not wrong to want a need met it's wrong to think having that need met will fix everything Jesus knows brothers and sisters Jesus knows that to save us he's going to have to die And here in Mark chapter 2, he sets himself towards the cross. And so do you remember what the lady said about God playing a joke on us? She said, I think God just plays a cruel joke by giving us our deepest desires. Well, Jesus is not going to play a joke on us. God does not do that. God does not play jokes on his people. But He does indeed grant us our deepest wish. God does that. It's not a joke. God actually grants us our deepest desire, but not before showing us that our deepest desire is for Him. Not before showing us that what we want most, even when we don't see it, is to know Him and to love Him and to find forgiveness in Him. And so you see, it's through the forgiveness of our sins that Jesus grants us our deepest desires. And if He were not God, He could not forgive our sins. And if He had not shown us that what we want falls so very short, we would never want Him at all. 
And so we need to ask this question, how am I responding to the truth that Jesus forgives sins? How am I responding to this? Where am I treating, or what am I treating as a false savior in my life? We need to ask ourselves this regularly. This is not a one and done kind of thing. This is a sinful pattern that we often fall into. What are we treating as false saviors in my life? Is it my goals? If God would just grant me my goals, whether professional or otherwise, I'd be happy. That's a false savior. If God would just grant me my desires, then I would be happy. If God would just heal me, then I would be happy. You see, brothers and sisters, these are false saviors. We need to ask ourselves, have I confessed my sin to him and repented? Some of us are like Eustace. Some of us are just trying to tear off the dragon skin on our own. Some of us are just trying to be good enough on our own, and yet we need God to come in with his claws and peel off the sin that we just can't. Have I repented of my sin? Have I sought the forgiveness he offers, or am I trying to handle things on my own? And then we need to ask ourselves and take, take an evaluation of ourselves. How am I recognizing that he is Lord? Am I fully submitting to him? Am I recognizing that he is both Savior and Lord, that I can't have one or the other? I must have him as both. Am I submitting my desires to what he says is best? Am I submitting my desires, whether that's a desire, a good desire, whether it's a desire for healing, whatever that desire is, whatever we're thinking, if I just have that, I'll be good. Are we submitting that to what Jesus says is best? Because what Jesus says is best is that we find the forgiveness of our sins through him and life eternal with him. And to do that, he went to the cross. Which is why it's appropriate that we will take the table this morning. That we will share in the table this morning. But before we do that, I want to pray. So if you would, pray with me now. Lord, we confess that this is your word. And that your word is good. And that your word is life. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us by the power of the Holy Spirit things that we may be treating as false saviors. Desires that we have that may even be good that we're putting too much emphasis on. Help us to see, God, that our salvation is only in you. That our happiness is only in you. That our contentment is only in you. It doesn't make the other stuff go away. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle in this life. But it does mean that we understand rightly. So Lord, as we come now to the table, I pray that we would come rightly. That we would evaluate our hearts and our minds. That we would repent over sin and that we would remember that we do this to proclaim your death and your resurrection until you come. So Lord, we ask these things in your holy name. Amen. If you would come and uncover the table, please.